0: Well, having missed last week, I wanted to get back to this series again on fear. Uh, I hope it's not getting monotonous to you. It is, to me, quite an interesting study to go through some of these scriptures ahead of time and to see what God is doing. Uh, let's, let's go to Isaiah 43. I may touch on a couple here before we move on that I mentioned last time, but we're here in the end-time prophecies, and it is certainly a fearful time that we have entered. And I am noticing, as I rub shoulders here and there with people that are just out in society at large, that they are becoming far more aware of what is beginning to happen than they were six months or a year ago. Now when you bring up troubles, uh, they're aware of them. And many, many of them are aware that things are going to get worse. There are still those looking through rose-colored glasses that think, well, this thing's going to turn around soon and everything will be hunky-dory again and we can make money and go on as we have. But they do not even begin to comprehend. Even the ones that realize we're in serious trouble in this world and its economy in the United States, they still think that even though we may go through a real hard time, everything will get okay in maybe a few years. What they don't grasp, most of them, is that God Almighty is bringing his wrath and his anger down on the world and especially on Israel, just as he did in the days of Noah, and as he has at other times, and that this thing is not going to recover until Christ comes back to the earth, and that we are indeed going into slavery as a nation. So when we read these passages, and I am passing up most of them, even though this is going on for weeks and weeks, it is a scratch-the-surface summary, an overview, if you will, of all the things that we could talk about in the Bible that have generated fear. Because almost every passage, every story that God recounts has to do with men fearing for their safety, their lives, their difficulties, their food, security, or coming to learn to fear God. That's really what the whole biblical record is about. Now, it is interesting that as God brings fear down upon this world, when he is creating all kinds of things that would make for fear, And his object is to scare the world to the point of repentance. And that takes a lot of fear. At the same time, he's instructing us not to be afraid. It seems that no matter where we are in history, and we happen to be here in the latter days at the end, God has always asked his people to go exactly the opposite direction the world is headed. So while he is in the process of creating terror for the inhabitants of this earth, he is telling us, don't be afraid. And he knows better than we do how horrible it is going to have to get to make people fear the way he wants them to fear. Let's pick it up again in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Eternal that created you, O Jacob. And remember, he's talking to us here. He has to be uh, as spiritual Jacob, because he's telling us not to fear whereas all the scriptures, all the prophecies are telling Israel and Jacob, Jacob is Israel, that you'd better fear because I'm bringing the whole world down upon you and taking you into captivity. So it would be uh, a contradiction for God to tell physical Jacob not to fear. So the only ones who might be really paying attention to God would be spiritual Jacob, or Israel, and that would be us and others who understand God's plan on the earth. I created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Now, in one sense, this could apply to physical Israel. In that, God does say in other scriptures that he will not kill them entirely, but that he will save a 10% remnant of physical Israel to go into the millennium. So take heart, Jacob, you will not be destroyed. However, nine-tenths of you and more will die. That's still scary, isn't it? you have nine out of ten Americans lined up, and God says nine plus a few more are going to die out of every ten. So you would still tend to fear physically, wondering if you're one of the nine or the one, wouldn't you? And the same really is true of spiritual Israel, because he says very clearly in many scriptures nine-tenths of the church will go into the tribulation and he will only draw out a faithful remnant. Now, what kind of fear should that instill? A fear that we will die, a fear that we will go into the tribulation? That kind of fear will do nothing but get you into the tribulation. The kind of fear we need to come to have right now is the fear of our Father in heaven, the awe of him that stimulates obedience, righteousness, holiness, and then makes him feel like accounting us worthy to escape all these things that are coming. So when God says fear not, he's not saying don't fear everything that's He's saying, fear me, not everything that's coming down around you. A healthy fear. A fear that will actually accomplish something for you. A fear that will cause you to do the things that would save you. Not a paralyzing fear where you say, Huh, it's too much, I can't do it. Just give up. Because that will get you killed. Here is why he says, don't fear. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. We're going to see some examples of people who did just that shortly. Uh, And God did take care of them. Wonder of wonders against every physical law there is. God was able to suspend some things and cause them to live and not even be scorched. Do you believe that? Here is a prophecy of it. And the account of that, that we'll get to shortly, is in a very much end-time book that was even sealed to the end. So it is a message in that particular book that was written, if anyone was, specifically for us now. Okay? It's not just ancient history. But we'll get there in due course. Verse 3. For I am the Eternal, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for you. Egypt was destroyed at the Red Sea. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore, will I give men for you and people for your life. I will kill people in order to preserve you. Doesn't he say that he'll make us a sharp threshing instrument and the nations will bow down before his people at the end? And more specifically, with the two witnesses, but not just them, he sends eight men out principal men there in Micah 5 against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. So it's not a work of two. But God destroyed a lot of Egyptians and others in order to preserve his people Israel in the past. And he's saying right here, I'm going to do the very same thing in the future. I value you so highly that other people will die that you may live. Now why do I, why do you, deserve to live any more than anyone else. We don't, do we? No. I'm no more important, you're no important, than anybody out on the street, on any continent on earth. We're just one of those born on the face of the earth. We're not special. We don't have three eyes or something. We're basically like everybody else, except for the mercy and the calling of God. And he is called the weak and the base and those that are even less than most of the people who are around them, for that matter. Why? For his own glory. To show that he is God. To show that people who are of lesser intelligence, perhaps lesser character, lesser self-control, lesser ability and competence, can confound the intelligent, the wise, the educated of the world by what we accomplish through his spirit. This whole thing is about God. It's not about you and me. It's about God in having the world understand who he is. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And even as God is scattering the church, and even as he is about to diminish Israel and send them into captivity and scatter them, he is going to be gathering a small remnant together. So here again, we see that while the world is going one direction and God is tearing it apart, at the same time, he's going to begin to gather a small remnant. So again, God's people are going to be marching the opposite direction of the rest of the world. He always has us in opposition to what is going on. We are always traditionally have been and will be the adversary. What happened when Christ was born? Herod said, kill all the babies, the males. Let's be sure we get that one, who is rumored to be set up as king of Israel because he didn't want it stepping on his job. So Christ was the adversary from the moment he was born. Herod wanted to be sure, so what did he take them? Two, three years of age, he killed them, even though Christ had only been born a short while, but he wanted to be sure. A lot of babies died for the opportunity for Christ to live. And he said he'll do the same for you and me. He'll kill others that we might live. So he says, don't fear, don't worry about it. I will take care of you. Chapter 44, uh, verse, what do I want here? Well, let's start in verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Uh, We are a part of the chosen ones of God here at the end, chosen out of this world, called out of it, and hopefully being chosen to be the ones that he's addressing here. Thus says the Eternal that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. I'm concerned about you. I formed you from the womb. I knew you as you were before you were even born. I knew who I was going to call. I knew what I had in mind. You're a Johnny come lately, but I had this planned a long time ago. What we're reading here was written over, probably, well, not, yeah, 2,500 years roughly ago. but it's happening now. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Israel, whom I have chosen. I did read these last time I spoke, but I I want to set the tone here a little bit again. Verse 8, Fear you not, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God, I know not any. What he's declaring there is that most of the world does not recognize who God is. And he's saying that his people, and I think that's kind of the way I ended that last sermon, his people are here and being called out to show that he is God. That's what this whole end time thing is all about. Chapter 51, here verse 7. Hearken to me, you that know righteousness. That could be no one other than the church of God, true righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, those that he has called according to the new covenant to be baptized today. Fear you not the reproach of men, neither be you afraid of their revilings. And then he goes on to show that he's going to take care of them. We're going to have the whole world stand against us. The whole world will be our enemy. Is that scary? It normally, naturally would be. Not just our enemy but our sworn avowed enemy that intends to kill every last one of us. That is their goal and their purpose. To wipe out any vestige, any witness that Almighty God is God. Do you realize that we are being put in the same position as Daniel, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Their enemies had vowed to kill them and worked through the king of the land to accomplish that. And we're headed for the very, very same scenario. We don't know what persecution is. We've seen a little persecution in worldwide by the world. We see a little bit here and there from our friends and our relatives, whatever, snide comments or put-downs or whatever, but it's not anything like this. This is nasty stuff we're talking about. Let's go to 54, verse 4. Now this is a time of renewal. Uh, Verse 2, he says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. In other words, a time of growth. This follows 53, where it talks about Christ, our sacrifice, and what he did for us, and then he goes into this chapter showing how he is going to enlarge his remnant, he's going to bring people from all over, at a time, again, when the world is coming apart and Israelites are being killed and taken into slavery. And yet he's going to bring his spiritual Israelites from around the world and whatever countries they may be in and bring them together to be a light on a hill that will shine in the world's eyes in a way that they will not like. Have you ever been in bed asleep or nearly asleep or whatever and somebody came in and flipped the light on? Irritating, isn't it? You wish you could reach the light switch without getting up and flip it off? And maybe even more so, you wish you could reach them and flip them off? That that expression didn't come out quite right, but I mean, hit them, whatever. We are going to be set up as a light shining in the eyes of the world. And they will not like it. They'll want it shut off. But as the world comes apart, we come together in opposition to what they're doing. Anyway, he says in verse 4, Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. The church has fallen apart. It has become a byword. Remember Worldwide Church of God? Yeah, what happened to them? <laughs> Remember Herbert Armstrong, Ted Armstrong? Yeah, what happened to them? You guys kind of fell apart, didn't you? You don't amount to anything. It's kind of a shameful, embarrassing situation. Well, you know, we're the only ones that have the truth. Yeah, it, it appears that way. Really appears God's blessing you folks. Where are you now? Who are you? What are you doing? Yeah, right. Yeah, you're 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 the faithful chosen of God. Mm-hmm. Twin pigs fly. So we have no reputation. He says, don't worry about it. I will take care of it, and you will be ashamed no longer. Verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Anything that they make bigger and better to shoot you down with, will prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the eternal, and their righteousness is of me, says the eternal. You know what this is setting us up for? This is setting us up to have faith in God. To trust him implicitly. When the world is coming apart and people are being killed right and left, and the earth's population is being reduced by more than 90%, God is telling us, follow me, obey me, and nothing will happen to you. Did you ever try spitting into the wind? How well did it work? You usually got something on you. Now when the whole world is going down and God has predicted it, saying, I will be saved out of it, is pretty much akin to spitting into the wind. Unless someone you know can control the wind and the spit. Crude analogy But we've all been there. You know, there have been a lot of people that have gotten in trouble in times past on this earth. And when they were apprehended, perhaps, they said, well, I know somebody. I remember one time when I was barely 16, my granddad let me drive his new Oldsmobile 98. And uh, it had a big V8 in it. And I actually did stop at the stop sign. But it was so powerful feeling to mash that accelerator to the floor that even though I had stopped, I took off very rapidly, so quickly that the cop thought I hadn't stopped. Now to explain to him that I had stopped didn't mean a thing. Who are you? Whose car is this? Is it stolen? It's my grandfather's car. Who is he? R.W. Pittman. Oh, you should be more careful, son. I knew somebody who in that little bitty town was a big frog. My grandfather. And some of his grandchildren, including me, got away with a lot of things because of him. Sometimes knowing somebody helps you out of a bad situation. And sometimes knowing somebody doesn't help you at all. You think you know somebody whose name might mean something. Have you ever had anybody say, but don't tell them I told you so? Because they might know that their name doesn't mean anything, but you might think it does. So you're kind of flipping a coin sometimes in whether you call upon, I know somebody. Well, in this particular instance, you better know somebody. And it better be the one whose name can help. God Almighty is the only one who can save us in the time just ahead. Know him and call upon his name, or you will be in trouble. But he says, know me, obey me, and I will take care of you. Now, would any of you deny that that's the case? No, you've read through the scriptures too long. Everyone here has read too many times all the scriptures where God gives us that kind of encouragement. We're reviewing some of them here because we need to. Just knowing it and having read it does you no good unless you believe it and act on it. That's when it will help. Now, have any of you ever been in a position where you had a little argument with yourself And you were thinking, I wish I wanted to do what is right. But I actually want to do what is wrong. We have all been there many, many times, whether we've expressed it that way or not. You see, I always wish that I wanted to do what's right. But I don't always want to do what's right. That is human nature fighting against the spirit, because we, want, we actually do want to do less and such. Now I've been going to town on a project quite a bit lately, and Marla has told me you should not be eating fast or fat foods. I will send a lunch with you. Thank you, my love. I do appreciate her effort, and she has my best interests at heart, no doubt. But just yesterday, the guy I was with said, I want some tacos with cheese and, and uh, sour cream and hot sauce and all that stuff. And he pulls up and says, I want five tacos. How many do you want? And I almost said 10. And I said, I brought my lunch as I pull out my little bag. And as he's ordering his tacos, I pull out this little baby carrot. Now, I wished I wanted to eat carrots. But truly, I actually wanted to eat tacos. That's what I really wanted. And he kind of laughed at me as he chewed on his fat taco. They, they looked really good. I didn't actually want to do what was right. I really wanted to do what was wrong, for me. Not that it's wrong to eat taco, but it wasn't good for me at that time, and probably won't be for a while. Now I tell that story because I won. I will not tell you the times I have not won. We want good examples, don't we? Because sometimes we don't win, do we? We actually want to do something wrong, and sometimes we do the wrong. Like Paul said, man, I wish I wanted to do what was right, and I wish I had of, but I didn't. The things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. And that is The fight. But we have to have trust and faith in God that if we go ahead and actually go against our nature and do what we should do, things will turn out right. And that all these things that are coming on the world will not come upon us. He makes that promise to us. Chapter 59. And here about verse 19. Now, God is talking about some things that he is going to do, how he's going to bring things down on this world. I won't go through the whole story because it's repeated through all these prophecies over and over. But let's get to the crux of the matter, verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Eternal from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Eternal shall lift up a standard against them. God is going to bring such havoc on the world that they'll fear all the way around the earth, the whole path of the sun. And he's going to set up a standard, a banner, a power against them, and guess who it's going to be? It's going to be us. Remember Uriah? David said, put him right out in the front. Uriah at the wall. God's going to put us right out in front, the front of the battle, the hottest part, although he will not allow us to be killed. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and to them that turn from transgression, and Jacob says the eternal. As for me, this is my covenant with them, the ones that he will use, he says, My spirit that is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your seed, nor out of the mouth of your seed's seed, says the Eternal, from henceforth and forever. This last time, at the end of the age, he is going to put his spirit in his people in such a manner that it will stay there forevermore. We will never relapse again as Israel has traditionally done. It's always been obedience, disobedience, blessing, cursing, obedience, disobedience, blessing, cursing, an up and down wave. Never again. From here on, it is going to be upward forevermore. Isn't that encouraging and exciting? That we're not going to fall off the wagon? We all have. We all still do. We set out in the day to have a great day and do everything God would have us do, and somewhere along the line we nearly always stub our toe and come up with a wrong attitude or a wrong emotion or a wrong feeling or a wrong word or something somewhere along the way, don't we? Because physical fights the spirit. But there will come a time when that nature will change and you'll never fall off again. I look forward to that day, and I hope and pray that I will obey in such a way. fear God more than I fear the world around me. But I can come to the point he's talking about right here. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, get up and shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the eternal is risen upon you. Now, how much light do you and I have as individuals? Oh, yeah, we're bright, aren't we? Excuse me. Now, God's light will shine. Now, that light is a powerful light. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Well, this whole world is going to be shrouded in darkness, they won't have an answer, they won't have a clue, they won't know what to do, but the eternal shall rise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, and the Gentiles shall come to your light, <laughs> or I think my I looked that one up one time it says the Gentiles shall come to Zion, and kings to the brightness of your rising not only rise. Physically here on the earth is a light before them, but ultimately at the first resurrection to our rising from the earth, I think, could be included here. Because isn't that going to be the most powerful witness right at the end when Christ comes in a blaze of glory and his people rise to meet him in the air? The whole world is going to stand in awe and fear at that point, the ones that are left, are they not? Lift up your eyes round about and see. Look around and actually see, he says. All they gather themselves together. They come to you. Your son shall come from far, and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see. The world's in darkness. They can't see, but we will see. And your heart shall fear. Well, let's see. Then you shall see and flow together, or come your heart shall fear and be enlarged. Because the abundance of the sea, or the people, shall be converted to you, and the forces of the Gentile shall come to you. So God says the world's marching to death, you're marching to life, and at some point, because you trusted me, and my life rose in you, and you rose to meet me in the air, the whole world is going to then come to you. as the rulers in the millennium of the world. Sometimes I get so frustrated when I see the evil, the fraud, the lying, the cheating that goes on in this world and the hurt that comes on people. And I feel so helpless. There's not a thing I can do about it. It just is. And yet God said, if you will march against the world and come my way, I'm going to put you in a position of rulership, and you can do something about it. Now you say, I'm not prepared to be a king and a ruler. How can I be that? It's really quite simple. If you will learn to fear God and keep his ways, you know. You've been there and done that, and you will be experienced and know how to help others do what you have accomplished. It's really quite simple. It's not a matter of necessarily organizational ability or training in government. Learning God's way is training in government learning to govern yourself, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, is training to be a king. Because if you learn to control your body, all of it, in this life, you'll be ready to teach others how to control theirs. Because isn't that what really is at the basis of the problems in the world? From the top to the bottom, God says this society sick from the Head to the foot. Whether they be high-respected government officials, they still lie and cheat and steal. And if they're just blue-collar laborers on the minimum wage level, they do the exact same thing. You were learning a different way, a better way. And if you go against the pulls of the flesh in this world and you learn to control yourself from head to foot, then you'll be ready to rule. You will have learned. You will have experienced everything that is necessary. Now isn't that what Christ, was said of him. He learned by the things he suffered. He came down and made himself as a man and was tempted in all points like as we are so that he might understand and be a better high priest and mediator for us before the Father. So by coming here and living absolutely perfectly for 33 and a half years, in spite of every temptation that has ever been known to man or woman, he qualified to rule the whole earth, because he had perfect self-control. Now he was like You and me. Do we grasp and understand that Christ wished he wanted to do what was right, but he actually wanted to do what was wrong? He had to go through that process. If he didn't go through that emotional process, he has no clue what we go through. The primary difference between him and us is that he never gave in. He did what was actually right in spite of the fact he didn't want to. Nevertheless, Father, not my will but yours be done, says it all. Did his heart come up in his throat when they came after him? Was he concerned when he was in that garden? Didn't he ask his disciples, You know, just stay up and pray with me. Watch for an hour with me. They weren't getting killed. They just went to sleep. Now, there was a certain amount of anxiety that he had. There is that natural tendency to fear that which is about to happen to you, especially if you know it's coming but his fear of God and his trust and faith in God overrode all those human emotions and fears that were only natural to him.
1: <clears throat>
0: so he subjugated his own feelings and fears in trust in his Father. And that's all he asks of us. I say that's all. That's a tall order. Will Christ find faith when he returns? That is the question. Now, I'm going to skip on over Ezekiel, and I mentioned this last time. Uh, I mentioned several times that there are many dire prophecies in Ezekiel about this nation even being reduced to less than 10% survivability. Uh, Look at what happened in Haiti the last two and a half, three weeks ago now. You've all seen the pictures, I'm sure, of the utter, it seems, devastation that occurred there. But out of the millions of people in Haiti, there may be 200,000, maybe more, they'll never know, who died, Not anywhere near 90%, as destructive as that was. Nowhere near 90% died. It's going to be far worse here than any pictures you saw there when this comes down. (laughs) That's what Ezekiel 5 is saying. And there are some terrible, horrible things written in the book of Ezekiel that will scare you. We've been through most of it, or probably most all of it at one time or another. I don't want to go there today because uh, my concordance doesn't even mention the word fear in the book of Ezekiel as a word in particular, but it does describe many conditions that would bring great fear. But understand this. I looked it up this morning. There are 26 times in Ezekiel, that it says, and they shall know that I am the eternal, or words very similar to that, 26 times in that book, 91 times it says, I am, or I am the Lord, or I am God, words to that meaning, 91 times. 435 times it says, the Lord. Words such as the word of the Lord, or uh, thus says the Lord, that type of things. In 48 chapters, 435 times the Lord. Now is this book about God? We may have focused on the horrors when we've read that, most everybody in the church for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. His known Ezekiel 5, Herbert Armstrong was preaching that. I remember back in the 50s as a child. I heard him quote that very passage about how 90% of us would die. And then Ezekiel was to take out a few more and throw them into the fire, showing actually over 90% or a small remnant, not a full remnant. I remember hearing that from age eight, nine years of age, over XCLO and XCG, coming out of Mexico. Scared me. My uncle, my parents, family, got together every Sabbath and read the latest Time News, U.S. News Magazine, about looking for signs that this was coming, watching, as we called it. It was scary. So we read the scary parts and believed them, didn't we? Did we focus on the message that God was trying to get across? I think to some degree we did. They shall know that I am the eternal. All this horror has a purpose. All that Ezekiel says is coming has a purpose. All these scriptures we've read in Isaiah have a purpose. That is to show that God is God. Now, let's understand this. The job of the church today, if you want a job description, there are many who have different ideas of what the job of the church of God is today. Some say it's to prove that Herbert Armstrong was a man of God. Some say it's to prove that Herbert Armstrong is not the man of God. Some say it's to make booklets and have a nice social club on the Sabbath. There are a lot of different things that people would say the responsibility the calling the job of the church is today, except the correct one. I'm going to put it in one sentence. Now it has many nuances and and many things feed into it. But the primary job of the church today is to show that God is God. You look at all the prophecies through the whole Bible. You look at the ones about the end time, and they all come to focus right here at the end. They all have, they may have been fulfilled once or twice or three times or four in the past. But the focus is on now. They all come together for the final fulfillment of every prophecy in there. And the force, the push, the statement, With each dire prophecy to come upon Israel and the world, in one form or another, is to show that he is God. He will raise up a church as a witness at the end that God is God. A light on a hill. He will ultimately raise up two as formal witnesses, because you cannot condemn except in the mouth of at least two witnesses in the Bible their testimony will be what? That God is God. That the Pope, or the religious leader of whatever ilk he is, or the beast, or Satan, is not God. But our almighty heavenly Father, our creator, is God. And nobody on earth but the faithful will believe that. They will have accepted a false god. The whole world will worship the beast as god, except for a very few kooks and a cult that needs to be destroyed, because they're the only voice on the face of the earth that doesn't believe that the beast and the false prophet are god. He says, you are my witnesses, we just read it in Isaiah, that I am the eternal. Now whatever form it might take in terms of getting the word out or example in the way that we live, the fact that God is creator and we are his called out ones puts us in the position of showing that he is God. Our lives are to be a testimony of that. Why did he say to set an example to the world? Why did Christ come and live the example to the world? He came here to show a world that does not fear God, that he was truly the Son of God and that God existed. That's what it was all about. And here at the end is going to come the most powerful witness that has ever existed, including Noah's Ark, and including the Red Sea, and anything else you want to name. Right now, you and I are involved in the greatest witness to ever hit the earth, that Almighty God is God. That's the reason for our calling. It's what we're here for. Because faith will not exist except in a very few at the end. And it must reside in you and me and others like us. Now, if you don't understand our approach here, if you're on the telephone line or hear this tape at some point, I'm not talking about this little group. I am talking about God's faithful 10% remnant of those he called at the end time who are scattered around the world at this point, and there's no telling which organization they are either in or out of. God knows who they are, and he is going to stir them to come together to build his temple and to show the world that he is God. That's his purpose. I don't need to go out to everyone I see in society and say, you know, we're the only ones that really know who God is and you worship a false god. There may come a time for that. I think there will. But right now, wherever we go, wherever we rub elbows in the world, when we depart the scene, whether it's at the checkout station or at the market or wherever, There should be, to one degree or another, a pleasant reaction from the people we leave behind that there's somebody that's likable. There's somebody that's happy. There's somebody that made me smile. There's somebody that was courteous, pleasant, instead of bah humbug. You ever get a little irritated in line to check out? I have occasionally. Somebody has an old friend there they know, and they stand and talk a while, visit, check out's done, then they finally start looking for their purse or wallet, then they open it all up and they keep talking while they start writing a check. Now, if I'm in a hurry and not being benevolent and loving, sometimes that irritates me. Why couldn't they have fished that thing out while it was being checked? And why couldn't they have already had the date and the name and, and all that's and who it was to all filled out? And then when it was finished, they got a total, and all they had to write in was the total, and then fold it up and pack up and go inefficient, delaying, irritating, and whatever else. And there have been times 40 years ago or back when I was carnal, whatever it was, that that irritated me. Not lately. Well, I haven't bought anything today. You know, sometimes I can handle a situation like that. Oh, yeah, dum-de-dum, I'll be patient. But there are times when I'm in a hurry that it kind of irritates me that they want to, you know, wait till after work and go, go for coffee or something or, well, Mormon, go for Pepsi and talk things over, you know. What type of diapers are you using? But why discuss it there when there's a line 10 feet, 10 people long? Let's get on with the Word of God. How do I get over there? But no, we are here to set an example. So we have to control our emotions and our feelings and our attitudes. Maybe ask them pleasantly. I, you know, some, we're in a hurry here. Would, would you mind writing a little faster? Than, nah, never mind. It doesn't work. But that's what we're here for, is to show the world that God is God, And it may be in a very innocuous and small way at the moment. But it's going to get more pronounced and more obvious as time goes on. There's someone that I've been working with recently that always, well, gives my name when they introduce me and say, well, these are those people out in cane beds with the Church of God. Always says that every time I'm introduced. And you know what puts pressure on me? I just assumed he didn't mention the Church of God, because if they say these people were the Church of God, I know that in and in most people's cases, it's Mormons they're introducing me to. I know they're going to think, yeah, what's that? And who cares? And also, it puts pressure on you to represent the Church of God properly. And since I am against most churchianity. Christianity, they call it. I don't want to be categorized with those. And it really irritates me when they say, well, he's the preacher. Because I think that they're going to think of these soft, you know, the cloth. And I don't want to be categorized that way. So being a witness to this world has its challenges. But, you know, the church used to be ashamed or scared. So when you introduced yourself to people, let's say as a minister, even Pasadena instructed you to say, I'm a representative ambassador college, not of the church of God. Because they were fearful of persecution. That's what it all came down to. I'm a representative of Ambassador College. Now, is that being ashamed of God? In one sense, it is. Fearing persecution. Now, we're entering a time when real persecution is about to come, but we thought back then that things were going to wrap up as quickly as some thought they would, We thought then that persecution would become heavy, so we were trying to hide from it. Is that what Daniel did? Oh, they want to kill me. I guess I better go say my prayers quietly somewhere where they can't see me. But he had already established the habit of praying toward Jerusalem through an open window where he could be seen. Now, had he changed that, it would not have been good. So instead of cowering in fear, Daniel said, I'm going to keep doing just what I've been doing, and if they don't like it, that's too bad. I am a representative of God Almighty, was his approach. And I'm not going to shrink back from that. Now, was he persecuted? Yes. But he didn't try to hide. I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit here. Let's go to Jeremiah for a short, just, just a few here in Jeremiah. Uh, chapter 2, uh, down about verse 19. Your own wickedness shall correct you, and your backsliding shall reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter, that you have forsaken the eternal your God, and that my fear is not in you, says the eternal of hosts. Writing to Israel here, he says all kinds of horrible things are about to happen. And you feared the wrong things, and you haven't feared me, and you've gone your own way, and therefore the things you have feared are going to come upon you. Now, we are almost unique in the world. There are others who understand, in a general way, the horrors that are about to come down on the earth. But not too many people grasp it, and even we have trouble grasping it. So those fears have entered our minds as we've read these scriptures, haven't they? Now, is what we feared going to come upon us Or is it not? Or will we learn to fear God ahead of everything else, put him first, and then have him protect us so that that which we feared, God, does come upon us and bless us? That's the kind of fear I want to have and have come upon me. It's fear of obedience that leads to obedience to God that brings his blessing in a time of great cursing. We are being equipped to do just that and to come under that protection. That is the purpose of this series of sermons, to prepare you to succeed and survive in that which is coming. Some will. Chapter five. Here verse twenty-one Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which I have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Fear you not me, says the Eternal. Will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual degree, that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it? You can go down to the sea, and you can have a storm blowing with six, eight foot, ten foot, twelve foot breakers, fifty foot breakers coming in, and you can look down on the sand, and you can see where the dry stops and the wet begins. And you can stand barely on the dry, and you can have a 50-foot breaker coming in toward you, and you can know that it's not going to hurt you because you're standing back where it's dry. Now, it'll change the line. It'll change a little bit with the tide, but... The point is, God has set a boundary. He created the sea, and he created the beach, and he created the rules that control it. You can trust God. You need to fear him who is able to make this universe and this earth and the waves of the sea. Now there are times when tsunamis hit, but those are unusual times when the normal boundaries are removed because of some other physical phenomenon that God has also created as possible and sometimes causes to happen. It is only by his decree and by the natural laws that he has set that earthquakes might occur that would change where the waves come to. But he's speaking here in normal terms of when you visit the ocean, normally speaking, there is a boundary that it does not go above. Fear him. But this people has a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart. Let us now fear the eternal, our God, that gives rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserves to us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Very few will put their lives and their harvest, their wealth, their lives in the hands of God, who created the heavens and the earth. For mankind to trust God with his life is very, very unusual. you, can be very unusual. See how you can qualify to rule the world? You can simply trust God with your life. And that qualifies you. Because it means that you will do the things he says so that that trust will be honored and answered in blessing. That's all it takes to be qualified to rule the earth. There's much detail that can be added to that, but that's the bottom line. Chapter 6, verse 25. Well, let's see, verse 24. We've heard the fame thereof, our hands wax fee- feeble, uh, anguish takes hold of us, and pain is of a woman in travail. That's a scary time, isn't it, girls? When you feel that first pain, and you know the baby is going to be here pretty quick, and there's going to be an awful lot of pain and hurt between the time of that first pain and when you're holding a baby in your arms. It's a time of fear, especially the first time and anguish, and frustration. And you don't know for sure the first time what's coming and how bad it's going to be. You've heard stories, but now it's you. And I'd say, God says, it's kind of the way the world's going to be when it gets down to this point. Go for, not forth into the field, nor walk by the way, for the sword of the enemy and fear is on every side. going to become dangerous to be anywhere, just to be will be dangerous because there will be people who are hungry and angry and frustrated on every side who want anything you've got and they may even want to eat you. Jeremiah makes that very plain in other places. O daughter of my people, gird you with sackcloth and wallow yourself in ashes, make you mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. It's going to try their way. He goes on in that light to describe it. A very terrible time is about to come. But he's trying to prepare us in these scriptures as to how to handle it and what to do about it. That's the whole point to prove that he's God and get it through our thick heads, that there is the protection. There is the answer. The rest of the world is out there buying more ammo and more guns and bigger guns and trying to get in place with their neighbors to set up a defense about the horrible things that are coming. They recognize some of them, apart from God, that things are about to get bad. They see it coming now. They're aware. So they stock up on ammo and prepare for the worst. And in their minds, they're ready to shoot any and everybody who tries to take what they have. How many of them are going to die? You raise up a gun against those who are about to come to get you, and they're going to have more guns and bigger ones than you do. That will not save you. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. We have to have something bigger to protect us from guns. Almighty God is the only answer. Chapter 10, verse 6. For as much as there is none like to you, O Eternal, you are great and your name is great in might. See how often through these things it it promotes God? I'm just picking a few. Who would not fear you, O King of Nations? In other words, it's unimaginable that everyone wouldn't fear you. I mean, look at the awesome universe through some telescopes. Look at this awesome earth and the water and the land and the plants and the animals and the beauty and the climate and the weather that we can actually survive in. It's a wonderful place wouldn't the one who created that be held in highest respect and awe and reverence? Who would not fear you, O king of nations? For to you does it pertain. It's all about you, in other words. It's all about God. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. How could it be that everyone would not fear God? And yet, how can it be that almost no one does? Says that in the next verse. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. It just doesn't make sense. But that's the way it is. Chapter twenty three. Verse 4, and I will set up shepherds. This is speaking of the future. He's talking here, and every church member knows Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 probably almost by heart, because it's against the shepherds, the preachers, the teachers, and we throw rocks at them in the church. But you know what? God didn't scatter just the ministry. He did scatter the ministry, yes, but not just the ministry. He scattered the people as well. Now we can complain and gripe about the leaders of this land. (laughs) Blame it all, Washington. But they're not the only ones that lie and cheat and steal. (laughs) Defraud, are they? God is not going to just punish them. He's going to punish the whole nation. Anyway, verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, says the Eternal. So God is going to put us in a place, in a situation, where we will not have to fear, we won't have to worry. Excuse me. That's Jeremiah 23, let's go to chapter 30. I wanted to get through some more of this today, but I get to talking and time goes by. Verse 5, chapter 30 of Jeremiah. For thus says the eternal, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all faces are turned into paleness? So if you were afraid the first birth pain you ever had in your life, he says even the men are going to stand around with their hands over their tummies out of abject fear, just like a woman about to have her first baby. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Chapter thirty two, verse thirty nine. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. It's going to put us a heart of awe, of respect, a heart of obedience, a heart of feeling and emotion and true love the man has never experienced in the way that God is going to do it. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Those who respond to the things we're reading and talking about today. God says he's going to bless them and give to them with his whole heart. Now, can you imagine that the God of the universe, the God who created this earth, would want to give to you and me with his whole heart? God who created the beautiful things we have around us, the things that we like to eat, the things that taste so good. says he wants to bless us with all his heart. Now we've received blessings and gifts from people sometimes that warmed our hearts and made us feel good, haven't we? Sometimes a nice word, a card, a letter, a thought, a call... Means a lot to us. Compare that to God saying, "I will bless you with my whole heart." Boy, he's got a big one. I, I, I want to be there. I don't want to miss that. Do you? Let's Let's determine. Let's set ourselves. Let's commit to being there with these conditions come to pass because they assuredly will. God has promised it on his word, his life, the very fact that he is God. Wrote it in here, and it cannot fail. And I don't want to fail to be there to get my part of it and share it with others. Verse 9, and it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which they shall hear all the good that I do to them. So it's going to be known around the world all the good that God does to us. Now what has he told us there in Revelation 19, is it? No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, utter security, blessing and honor and glory forevermore. People are going on the earth, they're going to hear about that. Now it's going to come in a smaller way even here at the end in the latter days, but it will come to pass in a much bigger way when we're resurrected and go to meet Christ in the air and come back to rule as kings and priests and in and with a heavenly Jerusalem that has no pain and no suffering in it and nobody who is a liar, a a cheater, a thief or anything else evil will be allowed inside the gates. That will be exciting. And all of these people are going to hear the good that I do to them, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure to it. So all this horror is going to come, and that will be in their memory bank, and then they're going to see God bless his people in a way that he's never blessed anybody before. And it is going to make an awesome impression. We use the word awesome quite lightly. Oh, you're coming to dinner. Awesome. No, that's not awesome. Nice, but not awesome. It's going to be awesome when Christ returns. It's going to be awesome when the kingdom of God comes to this earth. That will create awe and fear in the minds of men. Wow, I wonder if I could do what it takes to get in that gate. That's the kind of fear that God is trying to teach, to generate here at the end. And you are on the front burner. He has called you and me to show these people what we're talking about today. Take it personal. Take it as a challenge. Take it as an opportunity to take the things that you are learning, which seem like religion maybe at the moment, but it's not going to be just religion pretty soon when all this starts coming down. And we will be a very among a very few on the face of this earth who know God, the true God. Doesn't it say of even someone like Cyrus, who he says is my servant, he doesn't know me. Said it twice. Doesn't know me. These people out here who think they worship God don't even know God. They know a name, but they don't know him. They don't know how he acts. They don't know what he does. They don't know how to be a true Christian. It's window dressing. It's a form. We are learning from the depths of our being who God is. We are called upon to trust him with our health and our wealth. We are called to trust in him with everything that goes on in life and to come to lean on him to take care of our needs. We have an opportunity to do that now when things aren't too bad. Space to repent and to turn. And then all hell is going to break loose on this earth before men even begin to wake up to who God is. And it's what it's going to take before they say, now I know who the eternal is. Isn't that the way it's come to Pharaoh? Isn't that the way it's come to Nebuchadnezzar and the various ones who were elbow to elbow with God's people in the past? Nebuchadnezzar well, Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel's God is the real God. He's the God that can make these things happen. You people need to honor and revere Daniel's God. He never said, my God, did he? Never repented, never accepted and worshipped that God, but he did finally admit who he was. And this world is going to admit, ultimately, who God is, they will know it. But it's going to take an awful lot of pain and grief and suffering before that happens. Now's the time for you and me to get to know God. Now is the time, even in the little things, brethren, to trust God. If you were faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. We worry about, well, could I stand under those circumstances? You can know if you would stand under those circumstances by the way you stand today. Stand up for God now in every way in your life. Trust him. Believe him. He says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Every one of the hairs of your head is numbered. Not one sparrow falls to the earth that I don't know about it. God is a micromanager. He knows everything that goes on. He knows every trial, every trouble, every tribulation, every difficulty that you face. He knows every pain, every difficulty, every distress, every disease that you have. He is very aware of everything in your life, especially you. He knows it all. He knows your inner thoughts. He knows your attitudes, the good and the bad. There's not a thing that goes through your head that God is not aware of. That's scary. If he is that intimately involved with you, then you need to become intimately involved with him. Now he's the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one that set the bounds of the seas. He's the one that made all the laws and gravity that holds you on this earth so you don't fly away. And we can't trust him over job or health or our children or any or everything that might concern us. Difficult to hurdle that. It's difficult to turn your fears, your needs, your cares, your troubles and your problems over to God Almighty in heaven. You can't see Him, but you can. Romans 1, you see me by seeing the things that I have created. We need to go look at that moon coming over the mountain. We need to go look at a tree, not just see it whiz by as we drive down the road worried about whether we're going to make it to the hospital before we die or not. We need to see God and the incredible things of his creation. Even our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. How do they operate? Instead of focusing on the one who made them so that they do operate and could design it and put it all together and breathe life into it and cause it to happen, or cause a little baby to be conceived and begin to grow and look like a really funny little thing that might have crawled out from under a rock at first and developed into a thing that has hands and feet and ears and eyes and then comes out a mama and breathes the breath of life and is alive! Incredible! Astounding! Awesome! But then something goes a little bit wrong with our body and... oh my God, I must seek the help of the world's God. Come on. Do we know God is God? The whole world is going to know it. And you are going to know it. It would be good to discover it now and put all your cares upon him because he cares for you. What we are studying, what we are looking at here is vital. It's very important. There is not anything perhaps more important than us coming to comprehend somehow that there is an almighty being up there who lives, who breathes. Yes, his breath is there, even though he's spirit. He thinks, he loves with all his heart these beings that he's created down here on this earth. We're his children. Does a mother forget her baby? No. No then God doesn't forget us. All he wants us to do is believe that he is and that he can do and will and he will. That's all Christ ever told anybody, isn't it? Your belief, your faith, your trust has made you whole. If you want to be whole, trust, believe, fear, stand in awe of Almighty God.